I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I just, I kind of wonder like where you might be at with this topic of the end times or the signs of the times. Um, I didn't really, believe it or not, I, I did not really grow up in a church culture or even with a personal interest in, in apocalyptic things. Uh, anyone remember the Frank Peretti books, the, the Left Behind series that it seemed like so many of us were, were reading? Uh, well, that would have been back in the 90s, I suppose. Is that right? I remember my brother read them. I, I only read Sports Illustrated and the sports page, so I didn't really read those, I I suppose. But yeah, if I'm honest with you this morning, like I've just not really been uh, that interested in the end times, apocalyptic things of of nature. And uh, I was actually kind of a tiny bit surprised. I don't know if any of you are surprised when we think of the end times, what book of the Bible do we most often think about? Book of Revelation, right? And uh, yeah, I kind of had to like, oh yeah, that's right. Jesus talked about the end times. And I guess my encouragement for you this morning, like if you are, and I, and I don't know um, where you're at on the spectrum between, you know, maybe more towards my side, almost a bit of apathy towards end times details, or maybe you're more on the other side towards extremism, we could call it. And you're like, oh, Israel got bombed this week. That means the world's ending tomorrow. Sorry if I stole your prophetic word there. But anyways, I don't know if we could joke about it just a tiny bit. But we, we tend to find ourselves on a bit of a spectrum, do we not? And so what I'm trying to do this morning is, uh, is just start by saying that uh, we probably need to be brought out of our apathy if we have a little bit of apathy. I was realizing like, man, Jesus taught about this. Must be important. There's something for me in this. Maybe the attitude I've had needs to be scooted over just a little bit. In fact, I think, Nan, do you have, do you have the, the slide behind me with the, the little arrow, you know? So if if you're apathetic about the end of times or the signs of the end, maybe today would be my encouragement to push you a little bit more towards the other side of the spectrum. And if you're on the side where maybe you've gotten a little nerded out on the uh, end times and all the prophecies and you, you know what Daniel meant by 70 times seven weeks and all those types of things, maybe I could scoot you back just a little bit. But the, the end goal this morning would be for us all to have a sense of unity as we consider what, what are the main things that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples by talking about the end times. So maybe that'd be, that'd be a good like lunchtime conversation um, if you wanted, to, um, if you wanted to, to talk about, you know, where you sit on that spectrum. But anyways, I know that this conversation is, uh, is near and dear to some of our hearts. And so 
Um, I definitely want to be respectful of, of that this morning, um, but I also want to agree to make the main thing the main thing this morning. And just, just to agree that the end times and how it will all shake out is not a primary issue for salvation. We could have some disagreement or some misunderstanding or some questions, even curiosity about how things are really going to take place at the end of the world without losing our faith. I think that's really important. At the end of the day, how we interpret the Bible's apocalyptic end of days will not determine entrance into Jesus' kingdom. Remember, we just learned about Jesus' greatest commandment. And sometimes we, like the Pharisees, can get really into the details, missing the main things all the while, right? Remember, what did Jesus say? Love God and love others. So the primary issue at hand here today is, is uh, I just want to start out by saying what I think is the primary issue at hand today, and that's that there will be an end of days. The world, as we know it, will end. And Jesus' encouragement for us is to live with hope and purpose in every day until the end of days, no matter how bad it's going to get. On the next slide, I have a, a quote from theologian Frederick Dale Bruner. And you guys have heard me quote this man many times. Uh, and he says that apart from the sign, the, the sign of the Son of Man, which we read about in 24 verse 27, almost all Jesus' sermonic signs are simply what we know as tempted and persecuted Christian life itself. The signs of the end are not so much decipherable political events as they are warnings to be level-headed, clear-thinking, and warmly loving Christians in difficult times. Jesus does not so much charge the air with signs as he charges disciples with sobriety. Jesus' sermon does not intend to create apocalyptic seers, but to create spiritual long-distance runners. I don't know how you feel about running, but today we're going to attempt to train ourselves in righteousness, to train ourselves to be spiritual, long-distance runners. So let's jump right in. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, I've got a picture here of the building. This is the temple here. Now, the temple was a magnificent building. This was the eighth wonder of the world. It was incredible. If you've ever read the Old Testament description, I mean, we should rest assured that beautiful churches are a God thing. The temple was ornate. Every detail was laid out. This was an impressive building. So here Jesus is uh, with his disciples, and they're walking out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, and they're like, hey, man, look at those buildings. Like, that is pretty impressive. And Jesus says, do you see all these things? You see that building? That's really impressive. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, remember, Jesus' last words were, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, as he cast the seven woes against the religious leaders. He predicted the destruction of the temple. So Jesus has just said this magnificent building that you see here. It's all going to fall, and you have to wonder what must the disciples have been thinking. I mean, their whole view of God 
and the religious worldview that they'd grown up with centered around the temple. See, we have this worldview where we know that the temple of God resides within us because of Jesus' work on the cross and, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in their worldview, the temple was their faith. Same thing. The temple was synonymous with their faith. So to them, it must feel alarming that Jesus has just decried the pending fall of their entire world. So this passage starts with a question. Another passage that starts with a question. Verse 3 says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so Jesus and his disciples have now made their way out of Jerusalem. They've gone up to this mountain that overlooked the city called the Mount of Olives. Uh, some of you uh, may be familiar with the, with the term theologians use to describe this sermon of Jesus that we find here in, in chapter 24 and 25. It's often called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this sermon while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And then it says that the disciples came to him privately. In Mark and Luke's account, we read that this was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. This was the core four that came to Jesus, and they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, to modern readers like you and to me, it can seem like three questions. When will the destruction of Jerusalem happen? What will be the sign of your second coming? And therefore, the end of the age. It can seem like three questions in part because uh, we have hindsight in view, don't we? Like we know that the temple was actually historically destroyed in AD 70. Now, these disciples at this point in time, what, what year would this have been? Approximately AD 30, right? The 30, or I'm sorry, AD 33, the 33rd year of Jesus's life. This is just days before his death. So this is about 37-ish years before the temple fell. So they would not have known that the temple was going to fall like we know the temple fell. So for them, it seems like their expectation would have been that the fall of the temple would coincide with the end of the world. So they're saying to Jesus, okay, we get it. The world as we know it is going down. So they ask a logical question. When will the world as we know it go down? So this passage, it, while it's apocalyptic in nature and, and therefore very complex, um, I think it's actually fairly straightforward. And um, what Jesus is going to do is, is explain to his disciples the signs of the end of the world. But he's going to show them that it will not happen the way that they expect with the fall of Jerusalem. So let's take a look at the structure of Jesus' response. That's what I want to do first. Um, and and 35 verses is a lot. I do normally preach verse by verse. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that quite the same way this time. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, I'm actually going to do what, isn't there a book called Start With the End in Mind? Has anyone ever read that book? I've, I've been told that that's a book. Anyways, um, Jesus' answer, I think, is most helpful for us when we start with the end in mind. So I'm actually going to work a little bit backwards here because at least for me, it's a helpful way to put the pieces together. So um, yeah, and, and again, like this passage is, it's chocked full of things to explain. Um, 
And, and so I just, I cannot unfortunately get into all the things that there are to explain. But if you want to get into the weeds with things like, you know, the abomination of desolation, we could grab a beer sometime and we could nerd out together. Okay, so, so I'm down with that. I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd have a good time talking about that, those details. But I, I, I hate to disappoint you if you're here this morning for all the details about the symbolism and et cetera, et cetera. So the, the first thing that we, we have to understand um, about this passage and Jesus' answer to his disciples is that Jesus' answer about the end of the world is given through the lens of the fall of Jerusalem. So think about it this way, and, and I think this is a really helpful way to read this passage because if you don't read it this way, it kind of feels like, wait a minute, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the fall of Jerusalem? Or is he talking about the end of the world? And he almost feels like he's going back and forth without explaining that he's going back and forth. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, how many of you have like a favorite Instagram filter or TikTok filter, whatever it is? No one will give me any response. I know this is the church. No one uses social media in this church. You guys have all been well discipled. Anyways, a uh, little funny story. I posted one of our sermon clip videos last week uh, on, I think it was... Instagram. It was like one of those things that the kids are on. Anyways, um, I like, I didn't realize it, but I was trying to put like a filter on the video to make it look a little different from the other ones. I posted it. You guys could go verify this, but I like actually, I guess I chose like the sparkly filter. So there's like a sermon clip with me preaching with like sparkly filter. Anyways, I learned that the filter through which we view things is really important. And if you want to look sparkly, use the sparkly filter but if you don't want to look sparkly, you shouldn't use the sparkly filter. Anyways, it's as if, uh, it's as if Jesus is looking at the end of the world with, through the filter of the fall of Jerusalem. It's as if he's saying, this thing that's going to happen in your lifetime will feel like the end of the world. But it's actually not going to be the end of the world. So he's, again, predicting that the fall will happen. He actually, I think, predicts the timing of the fall in this passage. He says, again, in verse 34, so I've skipped to the end here, right? Follow along with me. He says in verse uh, 34 that this will happen within their generation. So in biblical times, a generation was considered to be about 40 years. So again, this was written in AD 33. We know historically that Jerusalem fell in AD 70. So is that within one generation? Yes. So, uh, so he is, he is, it seems as if Jesus knows that they need to know that Jerusalem will fall. It will feel like the end of the world to them, but it won't be the end of the world. That there'll still be more, and there's some ways that they need to live in the times to come. So this is key. Anybody ever feel like the end of the world is coming? Right? We can all shake our heads to this. And I was, I was reflecting with a friend even just Friday. I think it was Tyler who was saying like, like every age that we've ever lived in has felt like the end of the world in some ways. Like there has never not been a time when there was a war, you know. And even, I mean, our, we prayed for Israel this morning, you know, and, and the conflict that's going on there. But man, like I can remember another time when crazy stuff was going on in Israel or the Middle East or, you know, we could look to the war in the Ukraine. Anyways, the, I think these words are for us today because these words are for any time that feels like the end of time. So it will feel like it's the end of the world for you, but it's not. But what does he say? Verse 23 and 24, essentially he says, be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard for what? Be on guard for false prophets 
and anyone who claims to be the Messiah, even if his ministry is incredibly impressive, signs and wonders, you guys, and sometimes we get tricked by signs and wonders and we think if someone is performing signs and wonders, they must be of God. The Bible is clear that signs and wonders do not necessarily mean that the person performing them is of God. So there'll be false prophets. There'll be people who claim to be the Messiah. And I think, look, I, I want to say this just kind of carefully, maybe even stepping away from the pulpit. But I think that we, we do need to be careful because sometimes when I listen to people talk about all they know about the end of times, it seems as if they think they know the one thing that we're told specifically in this passage we can't possibly know. Any conversation about the end times that leads towards a prediction of when things will occur, I think puts oneself in the position of Jesus, in the position of God the Father, actually, because even Jesus doesn't know, according to him, when the end will come. So I just think that we should be really cautious. You know, I think that the Bible is for us to study. I think the Bible is for us to be known but I think we have to be careful trying to know more than we're supposed to know. That's just my like pastoral warning right over here. Not thus saith the Lord, but thus saith Noel. And, and I believe, look, the basic statement, it may feel like the end of the world, but it's not. This would be a great statement for believers to live by in all times. It may feel like the, the end of the world, but it's not. So the second thing is that after he says that the fall of Jerusalem will not be the end, even though it will feel like it, he says, you will know with certainty when I am coming again. And there will be only one sign. And that sign will be, verse 27, again, working backwards. This is for the dyslexic folks this morning. He says in verse 27, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So what's the sign of the Son of Man? It says in the following sentence, And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. What's the sign of the Son of Man? The Son of Man. There's one sign. His coming will be the sign. When Jesus shows up again, that's the sign that the world is coming to an end. And he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. You see all this symbolic language. It kind of like Four winds. What are the four winds, right? You could, you could probably figure out what the four winds are if you think long and hard. There's a lot of symbolic language, but here's the point. When the end of the world is here, you will know quite clearly that the end of the world is here because Jesus will be here riding on the clouds. Anybody ever grow up singing that song? This is for the Christian kids. I'm so sorry, but these are the days of Elijah, Right? Then he comes, what is it, riding on the clouds. You guys heard that song? Okay. I almost punished you by singing it together this morning, but there's just some places that we cannot go together. Anyway, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, <clears throat> what Jesus is clear about, like what he's really clear about, is that nobody knows the dates of his second coming. 
And uh, what can be clearly known, though, what we can clearly know is how we should handle ourselves in the waiting. And which, this is why I believe he wants his disciples to know that the things they are about to experience, Jerusalem's destruction, will be a helpful filter for which to see the end of time. So here we go. We're looking at the end of time through the filter of the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I believe that verses 15 through 26, and these are ones that I'm going to get the least into. Sorry if you were looking forward to the abomination that causes desolation. I think these verses are meant to help them prepare for this soon-to-be time of destruction, okay? When the abomination that causes desolation results in the destruction of the temple and the siege of Jerusalem. Now, miraculously, Jesus, he did. He predicted the fall uh, of the temple. So that's, that's really cool in and of itself, but... But it's important in this story because he told his disciples how to handle, how to be prepared for this time. And that's really important. So what does he say? He's like, get the heck out of there. Verses 15 through 26, I can sum that up in one word, three words. Get the heck, that's four words. Get the heck out. Flee. There are times in scripture when Christians are called to persevere during persecution. And there are times when we are called to get the heck out. And in this case, it would seem that getting the heck out was a really good idea. And imagine how, you know, uh, whenever there's persecution in Scripture, or often when there's uh, persecution in Scripture, the gospel goes forth because of that persecution. Everyone who stayed in Jerusalem, all the Jews who stayed, any Christians who stayed behind, got killed. Mass murders at the hands of the uh, emperor Vespasian and his son Titus. You could read all about that. And I believe that that's actually the abomination of desolation is the ruler that came. But anyways, everyone died except those who listened to Jesus' words and got out. And this is one of the reasons why faith has preserved to this day because people fled according to Jesus' instructions. So there's a purpose for his instructions. All right, so again, working backwards, now you're probably wondering... What are we going to, like, what's the point, right? This is what I was wondering all week. So what's the point? And this is always where we want to get with Scripture. How then shall we live? And I believe that this is the point, whether you nerd out on all the apocalyptic signs and symbols in Scripture, or you don't, the point is, how are we going to live in the time between the times? So here we go. Uh, Verses 4 through 14. And I wanted to give us a, a helpful little, I think it's called a mnemonic. It's like, um, it's like a poem. Can you go to the next slide? I, or maybe the slide before, Nan. There, no, that's the one right there. So this is, if, this is like a little poem that I made with Dale Frederick Bruner, uh, Freddie B, Frederick Dale Bruner, sorry. So this is like, he's Freddie B. That's like our, our alter ego, me and him combined when we start rhyming. So here's what we need to know. This is, these are the signs that we need to know because these signs will impact how we should live in the time between the times. Tricks and fears, hates and falls and tears are normal things on mission, my dears. I think this is what Jesus would want us to know. He'd want us to know that tricks and fears, hates and falls and tears are normal things on mission, my dears. It actually reads a little bit more like Granny Goose. Maybe not Freddie B, but Granny, Granny Goose reads like a fable, but hopefully that can help you remember as we go. So number one, tricks, verse four. 
verse four, tricks. So Jesus answered. We're finally back to the beginning. We're getting to his actual answer. He says, first, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Clearly, this is a warning for Jesus' first thing that he tells his disciples about their question for, towards the end of time is a warning. Watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one tricks you. And then he says, many will come in my name. You should pay attention to the many's and the most's in this passage. Many will come in my name. And, and look, this is the problem with deception, the problem with tricks. Whose name are they played in? Whose name do they come in? The name of Jesus. Those that claim Jesus' name can be some of Satan's greatest assets. 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 Think about it. Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints. Christian science. Progressive Christianity. Universal Christianity. All these faiths that carry the name of Christ, that carry the name of Christian, except they're not actually Christian. Maybe it's Thomas Jefferson Christianity. You ever read Thomas Jefferson's Bible, the one where he cut out all the miracles, all the things that seemed unlikely to have actually been possible? Maybe it's go to church on Sunday Christianity. There's lots of forms of deception done in the name of Jesus. Look, the biggest threat to the church is Christians who aren't really Christians. The biggest threat to the church is Christians who aren't really Christians. And their message is, it's not just evil, it's deceptive. It tricks many. And Jesus says, watch out. Verse 6 continues with some fears. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. So there'll be reasons to be alarmed. But Jesus says, see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. That's the really scary part, so I'm told. Look, the Bible's most used command. What is the Bible's most used command? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid or do not worry. They're different versions of the same thing. Why does Jesus say that we cannot be afraid? There seems like lots of reasons in these three verses to be afraid. You've got wars. You've got rumors of wars. You've got famines and earthquakes and, my goodness, birth pains. There seem to be reasons to be afraid. Why does Jesus say that we cannot be alarmed. Verse 6, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Here's the thing. He's got the whole world in his hands. We could sing another old song. That one might get better reviews than the days of Elijah. He's got the whole world in his hands. Look, 
Like I shared this morning, we know that the, the valley of the shadow of death is a reality for even those of us who follow Jesus. But we also know that he's in control. Even in the darkest valley, he's got the whole world in his hands. This is why we don't have to be afraid. There's a grand plan. And the guy in charge of the plan can be trusted. And look what it says. These things don't mean the end has come. These things don't mean the end has come. The end is still to come. So what do we have to do? We have to hold on. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine, earthquakes. What are these things? Well, they're all the beginning of birth pains. Now, I know what you're thinking. Noel, you've got, you have no idea what birth pains are like. And you're right. My wife will tell you that I have no idea what birth pains are like, even though we had five kids. In fact, when we had our fifth kid, I had such little idea still what to do when birthing a child that uh, when Megan went into labor with Esther, I actually Googled how to deliver a baby. Which the good thing about the world that we live in is that you can find that on the internet. And if some of you know the story, Esther was born with no midwife, no doctors around, and Megan actually delivered the baby, but I had on my iPad all the directions that I needed for delivering the baby. Anyways, that's just a funny story to talk about birth pains. But here's the thing about birth pains and why there's such a great picture for what Jesus is talking about. Like, why did, like, birth pains are hard. I've never seen Megan in more pain than when she was delivering. You mamas know what I'm talking about. And yet, for some reason, she went on to have five of them. Sean is working on seven. What is it about birth? What is it about what's produced in new birth? that encourages a woman to go again with the pains. What's being birthed is worth the pain. This is what Jesus is saying. And when there's a purpose to your pain, you'll go through it again and again and again as often as is needed. I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, some of you are enduring right now even, seasons in your life of immense pain. I'm here to tell you Jesus would say there's a purpose. Something is being birthed out of the pain. Take heart, Christian. They're painful, they're scary, but somehow indicators of hope. The next thing Jesus promises in verse 9 is hates. Hatred, disgust. It says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. This is like the shrink the church passage, isn't it? Hey, come worship Jesus, and then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Jesus has already talked about these things. Matthew chapter 10, we got the whole sermon on mission. Remember Jesus' sermon on mission, the one where he told us like, hey, go proclaim the gospel. Oh, and watch out, they're going to hate you for it. You'll be hated by all nations because of why? Because of me. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Look, Jesus never promised his followers that we'd be beloved by the world. And we often think that if we follow God, we'll be loved by man, but this is not so. And sometimes we're hated, uh, you know, sometimes we're hated not because of him, because we do dumb things. That also happens. You can't blame all of the hatred towards you on Jesus. Sometimes I do dumb things that cause people not to like me. 
but sometimes we will be hated for the only reason being that they hate him. We can start to see this, can we not? The world that we're living in, this feels pretty like apparent in the world that we're living in. The thing that's most likely to get me canceled is being a Christian. And we live in this little bastion of Christendom we call Exeter. But think of our brothers and sisters who live in maybe the Bay Area or the big cities. Areas that are a little bit more progressive in thought. Tolerance is the virtue of our age, isn't it? Tolerance of everything except the Bible. Tolerance of everything about, except faith in Jesus. Look, folks, you will be hated. These are Jesus' words. Next up, there's falls and the tears that come with falls. I had to put tears in there really only to make it rhyme, so I just wanted to get that out there. That's my confession right here. But the next thing, after the hates are going to come some falls. These falls are really discouraging for me as a pastor. It seems so often the falls are pastors, but they're not just pastors that are falling. I bet you've got friends who have fallen away from the faith. In our country right now, we are experiencing the fall of the church in a way, are we not? The number of people walking through the doors on a Sunday morning is shrinking. Take heart. Take heart. This is not so around the world. But in our time and place, this, this is really near and dear. It says in verse 10, at that time, how many will turn away from the faith? Many will turn away from the faith. Not just some, not just a few. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many, not just a few, many false prophets will appear and deceive how many people? Many people will be deceived. Many will fall. Many will be deceived by many false prophets. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. See, hate has a bitter consequence. There will be falling away. And Jesus even says that we will betray and hate each other. Anyone ever got into it with another believer? Part of the falls is this like wall of hostility that grows between us. More false prophets will appear. More false prophets. It says many will dissuade many. And then it says the love of most will grow cold. We should really perk up our ears when we hear this. The love of most will grow cold. Look, the, the math isn't going to add up. Many are leaving, and it will feel like a losing battle as most jump ship. It's going to feel like rooting for the Raiders, you know, like everyone's just jumping off the bandwagon. Anyways, it'll feel like a losing battle. But notice it's, it's the love of most that grows cold. We tend to think of the, old, the end times uh, in this way in which the, the main challenge for Christians will be to have courage. Stand strong. Have courage. The author Andrew Friedman, he calls that a failure of nerve, giving in to societal pressure. But it would seem, according to Jesus, that the bigger threat is not a failure of the nerve. It's not a failure of courage or of boldness. It's a failure of heart. Perhaps the greatest fall we can know 
is not a failure to believe, but a failure to love one another. How many of you have been tempted to fall into this coldness as you look out at the world that feels like it's falling away? Our biggest fear is a failure to love one another, but, but, and the buts in the Bible are always big, and that's not, a, that's not a double entendre or whatever they call those things. It says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is the encouragement that Jesus has for us. Hopefully this reminds you back to the quote that I started this message with. Look, the life of staying faithful to Jesus Christ will be an endurance race. You may have expected that faithfulness would be the result of something more significant. But Jesus says that the faithful are those who endure through all these hard things. It's not the one who stands up and reaches all his friends. It's not the one who takes the arrow into the heart. It's not the one who does this, the one who does that. It's the one who stands firm to the end. Some of us feel insignificant, not capable of much when it comes to impacting the world, not capable of much when it comes to ministry or even in evangelism. Who's capable of standing firm? The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The result of these hard times will be the fall of many, but not all will fall. And the ones who don't will live lives of incredible testimony. Take a look at verse 14. And, again, verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and connected. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It seems like the final result of standing firm to the end will be what? Mission. The end result of standing firm is mission. After all, Jesus will go on to say at the end of his gospels, before his ascension into heaven, you will be my delegates. He passes on his authority. See, but many of us don't feel like preachers or evangelists. I know a lot of you are sitting in your seats right now saying, do not give me the microphone. I don't even know if I could tell my best friend about Jesus. Well, don't fear, because it's not your awesome sermons that will be the mission to the world. It's not even my awesome sermons. They are awesome. (laughs) That will be mission to the world. It's the quality of our standing firm. It's the quality of of our endurance that will reach the world. This is great news for the introverts in the room. How's the quality of your standing firm? How's the warmness of your love? There's nothing more missional than standing firm. There's nothing more missional than standing firm when the world around you is shaking. The world's shaking, and people are looking to you. How is he going to respond? How is she going to respond? Keep calm and carry on. You remember those shirts? 
Do you know that phrase was created during the, the First or Second World War when they were bombing in England? People's neighborhoods were being bombed. Literally, the world's shaking, and so they created this mantra, keep calm and carry on. The world is looking at us, Christians. When the world around us is shaking, are we also shaking? Shaking in fear or shaking our fists in anger and hatred towards the world around us? The greatest testimony that we can have is to stand firm in the midst of the shaking. What's up with that guy? How come he's so calm? How come there's so much joy? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, yet he's so happy. He loves his neighbor. What's up with that guy? What's up with that girl? Do you see what I'm saying? The power and the testimony of standing firm. And why would we stand firm? Because, because we have reason for hope. There are scary things happening, but don't be alarmed, Jesus says. We have reason to hope, as in birth pains, even when the, the world around us is, is terrifying. Look, you want to have a testimony, focus on standing firm in the faith, in the midst of your fears. Your testimony of endurance, church, is evangelism. The gospel will go forward. So how does Jesus want his followers to live in this world? Hopefully, it's pretty clear. It seems like this world is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't remember a generation, though, where we haven't said that. Or maybe I only remember one generation. I'm 43. Sorry. You get what I'm saying. But here's the thing. Who's in control? Who's got the whole world in his hands? Here's the other thing. We can have hope in his ultimate return. Jesus is coming back. He will come back to confront evil, to establish his kingdom. This is what we put our hope in. There's great reason for us to have hope in the midst of our fears. So wherever you're at on that spectrum between apathy towards the apocalyptic things or extremism, how can we help those around us Move towards hope and away from fear. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you for lots of reasons. We love you because you're really smart. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because you've, you've told us about the things that we need to be prepared for. You've given us a heads up. We love you for that, Lord. This morning, I just want to say that I love you because there's hope in you, Jesus. And I believe it with all my heart, Lord. That in you, we can be reborn. And ultimately, that's what we're here to worship and, about this morning, Lord. That even when the world around us is shaking, we can stand firm because of your promises, that we'll be made new creations, Lord. And Jesus, I, I pray that you would help us be, as a church, as individual people, the kind of people who stand firm even when things are really, really, really hard, and the kind of people who have a testimony, who are that city on a hill, the light of the world, Lord, 
Would you make us the kind of people who draw more people to yourself? This morning, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we're so glad you joined us. But don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.